Okay, I'll start with a question that uh, you can answer. Who is Satan? Who is Satan? Or what is Satan? Is Satan a what or a who? What do you think? You, you know the answer, just <laughs> Mike. Anything that stands against God, okay. What else? Tony? A fallen angel, okay, good. What else? Chris? He is like a prowling lion, okay, so he's seeking to devour. Anybody know what the name Satan means? what the name Satan means, or what the name or the term devil, they both mean the same thing. So anybody know what the word devil means? Okay. Well, the name Satan comes from, um, in the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew word that means accuser. And so in the Old Testament, we have him referred to as the Satan. And so in Job, Chapter 1 and 2, it says, uh, the Satan comes before God. The accuser comes before God. Uh, in the same with, with the word devil. So the word devil literally means slanderer or accuser. Um, we see Satan doing this also in uh, Revelation. Well, not doing this, but he's called this in Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 10. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 10, uh, this is the picture of the dragon and the dragons thrown down to earth and all this. Um, and so in verse 10 it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So he is the accuser, the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of brothers, uh, and he accuses the brothers day and night. Um, so uh, we see that in Job, with, with the person of Job. We see it also in Zechariah chapter 3. Maybe you know that story. Joshua the high priest is clothed in filthy garments, and it says uh, Satan is standing at uh, his right hand, um, if I remember, I think it's God's right hand, standing uh, there to accuse Joshua, accuse Joshua, focusing Joshua, look at your filthy garments. There's no way you can stand before God. So I, I don't know if that's how you think of Satan. Um, is Satan just a guy who does a lot of bad stuff around the world? Or is Satan... Uh, the angel whose job, we may, maybe we could say his main role is to accuse, to accuse the brothers. Uh, we tend to live in a world that doesn't think about the supernatural, and I think all of us tend to, to live like this. Uh, we think more about scientific causes, um, and uh, we can kind of have explanations, natural explanations for why things happen. And so we don't often think about spiritual causes and supernatural things happening all around us, although I think you know, all of us as Christians, we know that that's true, uh, that there are spiritual forces at work around us. 
Um, there obviously are some people that can take that overboard. Um, you know, they think uh, Satan is there to untie your shoe and, and trip you up. And so every little bad thing that happens is some demon working in your life and you got to cast out the demons and things like that. Um, so some people are like that. I don't think most people are like that. I think most people don't think about the supernatural and specifically angels and demons. Um, but for today, the question that uh, I want to put before you is, do you think about this reality enough for yourself that you have an accuser? You have an accuser. You have Satan. Satan is at work in your life, not to untie your shoes or just to make bad things happen in your life, but Satan is always working in your life to try to accuse you. And so when you are faced with fears in your thoughts, in your heart, you start to fear the future, or you're faced with doubts of God, you start doubting the goodness of God maybe, you start to face depression and you're sinking into depression because of things that are going on in your life, my question is, do you ever consider that these kinds of thoughts are Satan tempting you? Satan putting these things in front of you to accuse you. And so the solution then is that in those times, we recognize that this is Satan accusing us. And so turn that off turn those thoughts off and instead go to the Word of God and say, now what does God say? What does the Word say about who I am and about what God says about me? You probably know the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, and I think uh, Pastor Sauber must have chosen that hymn for our morning worship. Um, I didn't tell him to pick that one, but we're going to be singing that one later on. But you probably know this line, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And a lot of people love that song. We love that song because I think we know the feeling. Satan tempts me to despair. And so when those temptations come, I'm supposed to look to the throne of God and see Christ in my place. Uh, and then the song that we just sang, we are by Satan sorely pressed. And then he says, be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. So we face our accuser with Christ and the work of Christ and the objective reality of what is true about us because of Christ, not the thoughts and feelings that we have that Satan is trying to accuse us with. Um, and so the, the, that term, Satan, accuser, or devil, which is like slanderer, that even itself implies that what Satan is saying is false. Slander is false. And so he, he is going to accuse you of things, but what he's going to say is not reality. He's the father of lies. 
So that's the, the main topic for today as we go through the bruised reed. And um, let's look again at the passage that Sibs is explaining, which is we're going to look at the version in Matthew 12. So if you can turn there again to Matthew 12, verses 17 through 21. We're probably going to read this passage at the beginning of every lesson, so maybe you will have it memorized eventually. Um, But Matthew 12, verse 17 says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, referring to Isaiah 42, verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So we began chapter one of Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs, and we looked at what it means to be bruised, and he said that it means to be in misery. And especially when we're in misery because of sin. We also saw the good effects of bruising. He says, why does God do this? Why does God bruise us? It's so that we will know that we are reeds and not oaks. We are just reeds and we think that we're oaks and we need to come to that realization. We are just reeds. So that's one of the good effects of bruising. So now in chapter 2, really the whole book, he's just drawing out what does it mean to be the bruised reed and that Christ does not break the bruised reed. Uh, So he he continues and he says, this is the calling of Jesus. What Jesus has come to do is to not break the bruised reed. But then he says, this isn't just a negative, but it's a positive. So positively, this also means, he says, that Christ is cherishes us. So he says, in this more is meant than is spoken, for he will not only not break or not quench, but he will cherish those with whom he so deals. So you understand, saying that he's not going to break the bruised reed means also that he cherishes us. Uh, So like you don't see a Valentine's Day card that says, uh, honey, I don't hate you right? I don't hate you. Or children say, a a girl says, mommy, do you love me? And And mom says, well, I don't let you starve. That's not what we want to hear. I don't hate you is not really good enough. And so you might read, okay, well, God doesn't break me. Great. Thanks a lot for not breaking me and crushing me. But Sibs is saying that's, that's not what he means. The fact that he doesn't break the bruised reed means he cherishes, he loves us. So Christ is gentle with us, he cherishes us, that's what it means. Uh, Then he goes on to talk about how Christ deals with the bruised reed. I'm going to skip that part, but he talks about Christ as prophet, priest, and king, and how he does that in a gracious way. Um, But we'll move on to other things in chapter 2. The next part that he talks about is what we should learn from this. What do we learn 
from the fact that Christ cherishes us. He doesn't break the bruised reed. Number one, he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, or when we should come boldly, because we have a high priest, a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. So Satan, one of his goals as the accuser is to keep you from coming to the throne of grace and from coming boldly to the throne of grace. There's a, another Puritan, Thomas Brooks, and he writes in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, this whole book about how Satan tries to get you to sin. He says, first, Satan will try to tempt you to sin by telling you sin isn't really so bad. Look, here it is. Here's right in front of you. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. Just give in to the sin. That's Satan's first temptation. But then, after you sin, Satan will tell you, your sin is really, really bad. And so he tells you that you're awful, you're an awful person who could not possibly be accepted by God because look at what you've done. So you see the, the contradiction. At first, he says, nothing's going to happen. You can have a great relationship with God. God will just forgive you. But then after you sin, he turns around with an illogical statement, an accusation. God will not forgive you of this. You are terrible because of what you have done. So this is how Satan operates. To first get you to sin, but then after you sin, to keep you from coming to the throne of grace. So here's how um, Richard Sibb says this on page nine. Shall our sins discourage us from coming when he appears there only for sinners? Why is Christ at the throne? He's there for sinners. He says, are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Do not conceal your wounds. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel. Go to Christ, although trembling, as the poor woman who said, if I may but touch his garment, in Matthew 9, 21. We shall be healed and have a gracious answer. Go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason that we might go boldly to him. So don't take Satan's counsel, but go boldly to the one who became flesh so that we might come to the throne of grace. Number two, what we should learn from this. We should learn that being the bruised reed is Christ's way of dealing with us. Christ first wounds us so that he might heal us. He wounds us so that he might heal us. So remember, he makes us feel that we are reeds, not oaks. And uh, he's, that phrasing, he wounds that he might heal us from Hosea 6, uh, where God says um, that he has torn so that 
he might heal. God tears so that he might heal. Sib says, no sound whole soul shall ever enter into heaven. In other words, we're not going to enter into heaven without going through this process of bruising, of what oftentimes requires pain. Um, sanctification is not an easy process, and it's going to be a long process. I thought of, um, you know, when I see little news stories about NASA, and NASA's puts out some announcement that whatever they're going to do, they're going to send something to the moon or they're going to send some rover to Mars. And they make the announcement, and I, I start reading, oh, this is cool, this is exciting. And then they say, uh, the, the rover will arrive in 2032 if all goes according to schedule. And then you're like, oh, well, that's kind of disappointing. 2032, that's a long time away. Um, but obviously, it's a lot of work, and they, you can't rush forces like gravity and orbits. And so that's why it all takes so long, is because they've got to orbit over, around all these things. And so you just think, like, what if you were a NASA employee? You might spend your entire life working on one project, getting this one machine to Mars, because that just getting it into space is gonna take nine years or whatever to get to Mars. Um, but I'm sure if that was your job, you would, you would understand. That's the expectation. That's just how long it takes. And maybe sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves or with other people because we think, come on, hurry up. There's, there's a lot of sin going on here. Why haven't you grown in holiness yet? Why aren't you like Christ yet? And Sibs is telling us this is a whole life project. Sanctification is going to take your whole life because there's a lot of work in us that needs to be done. So with that in mind, um, so this is how God works with us. This is how we're sanctified. Sibs says, if Christ is so merciful as not to break me, I will not break myself by despair, nor yield myself over to the roaring lion Satan to break me in pieces. So I'll read that again. If Christ is so merciful as not to break me, I will not break myself by despair, nor yield myself over to Satan to break me in pieces. So I'll ask, I'll ask this as a question for you all. How do, how do we tend to break ourselves by despair? What are some things people tell themselves? Breaking themselves in despair. Tell me. Okay, so we, we doubt maybe that we're not going to be forgiven because we've done it over and over. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Any others? Yeah. Doubt our salvation. Doubt our salvation. Why is that? 
that. So we wish that we saw more fruit in our lives. Any others? Mike? Are you saying like a good self-righteousness or a bad? No, we just watched the movie last night about somebody that didn't get the the praise. Yes. Sometimes we do things to be seen by others and others don't see it. And <coughs> yeah. Anything else? John? Yeah, so God might not change the situation. Yeah. That's good. Um, well, the one I wanted to, that I think uh, in some ways he's getting at is that in this sense, we despair, we break ourselves because we focus on what we have not done. We focus on what we've not done. We focus on all the things that are left in the journey of sanctification. Um, so another way to uh, illustrate this is to think of uh, children and a child that draws a little picture and they bring you a picture and uh, you could look at it you can see that the chimney goes all the way up to the clouds and that the window is the size of half the house and that the people are the size of the house and uh, you could criticize the picture in a hundred ways Here's everything that's wrong with the picture, but kind people don't do that, do they? You get the picture from the child and you say, oh, that's so cute. They, They have progressed from the scribbling on the paper to now they can actually draw what looks like a house. Um, but Satan is like that kind of person, the scolder, who will say, Okay, you're, you're, you say that you're making progress, but here's how bad your life is. Here's how bad the picture is. And he reminds us of how far we have left to go. And we help Satan along with that. We have those thoughts. It's easy to beat up ourselves. So you might think, I'm this old. I'm this old and I'm still dealing with this. I'm still struggling with sin. Or you might look at other people. Look at all those other Christians in the church. They're not as pathetic as you are. They've progressed. How come you're still at this stage? So the point is that Christ doesn't think that way about us. Christ sees the progress that we have made and that we 
are going to make, and that's one way that he doesn't break the bruised reed. Number three, okay, so number one, you come to the throne of grace. Number two, you um, learn that sanctification is a long process, Christ's wounds to heal. Number three, he says, see the contrary disposition of Christ on the one hand and Satan and his instruments on the other. Satan sets upon us when we are weakest, but Christ will make up in us all the breaches which sin and Satan have made. Christ binds up the brokenhearted, Isaiah 61, verse 1. As a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. So he says, notice the contrary disposition of Christ and Satan. Christ is going to be most gentle and tender towards the weakest, but Satan likes to pounce on the weakest. He likes to destroy the weakest. So do you think about that for yourself? When you are in your times of being the weakest, so maybe an analogy is, maybe you've done this before, you've gotten angry. You've gotten angry at somebody, and you know when you're angry, you just say things. And we, we call these sins of passion, crimes of passion, because you're just in the heat of anger. And when you're in the heat of anger, things just come out of your mouth. And you don't actually mean them, right? You don't mean the things that you say. But you were just in the heat of anger. And so in a, in a similar way, we can have these thoughts in our head about God. You don't really, because you're a Christian, you don't really doubt that God has saved you. You know, like doctrinally, you know about the perseverance of the saints. You know that, that God will keep you. You know the doctrine of the goodness of God. You know that God is good. But there are those times and there are those circumstances when you are at your weakest and those questions come up. Is God really good? Does God really love me? Is God really there to help me? Uh, is God going to save me? Is, 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 am I really a Christian? So all those questions. But you have to keep this in mind. And this is what I think is helpful that Sibs is saying. Satan pounces on you in your weakest. So when we get angry, what do we need to do? Just close your mouth. Just stop talking, right? So that you don't say things that you don't really mean. Well, in the same way, when you are in your weakest moments of having these questions and doubts, what do you need to do? You just need to stop. Stop thinking about it. Because this is Satan pouncing upon you in your weak moments. This is his work that he's doing as the accuser. And so we need to recognize that and say, okay, this is, this is the bad time when, when I'm having all these thoughts and I need to go instead to the word of God.
Okay, well next, the next part of the chapter, he talks again about who are the bruised reeds. How do you know if you're a bruised reed? How do you know if you will receive mercy from Christ? Um, his, this is his answer in, on page 10. The bruised reeds are brought to see their sin, which bruises most of all. So to be bruised means you need to be brought to see your sin as the thing that bruises most of all. And so you need to see that the greatest solution, uh, the, the best thing that can happen to you, is that your sin is dealt with, that your sin is covered. Because your greatest problem is your sin. You're the bruised reed because of your sin. So when we go through these miserable circumstances, when we face difficulties, God uses those to show us that we have idols. We have idols that we didn't realize were idols. And when things are taken away from you, the things that you wanted to happen in life don't happen, that's when you realize that you had this problem of idolatry. Uh, let's look at James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So James 4. James 4, verse 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Okay, so... Picture two fighting people. What causes fights? So husband and wife sit on the couch, and the pastor says, so what's causing your fights? And they say, he says, she does. She's causing the fights because I, come, I, I work all day, and I come home, and she wants me to do all these other things. And it really gets on my nerves. She's causing all the fights. And then she points at him and she says, no, he causes the fights because I'm at home all day doing all this work and he doesn't want to come home and help me. Uh, so you see they're pointing at each other. Uh, parents and children, you ask the same question. What causes the fights? Well, my child doesn't do this. And the child will say, well, my mom and my dad is like this. The two church members are in a quarrel. What causes fights among them? They say, well, he did this and he did that. And James answers the question. I'll wait, I'll wait. I sit here in my office and it goes on forever and ever during the week. I'm not going to wait anymore. <laughs> it's taking up too much time. Okay, so 
uh, James answers the question, what causes fights among you? He says it's in verse 2. You desire and do not have. And then you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. And so, so the, of course, um, sorry, it's really distracting me right now. Maybe I should wait for it to stop because I can't really think. <laughs> okay, I think it's done. Okay, so James's answer is you have a desire that you don't have fulfilled, that doesn't happen. And so it leads you to anger, to murder. Now, obviously, James isn't saying that people aren't at fault for doing things, right? People do things that they need to stop doing, they need to fix, and that's a circumstance leads to fights and quarrels. But the question that everybody needs to ask for themselves is, what is it that I'm desiring that I don't have? And why is it causing me to act like this? Right, so, so the husband or wife or parent or child, they, they might do something that annoys or frustrates you, but it might frustrate this one parent, but it just drives you crazy. So why does it drive you crazy? What is it about you that you are desiring something that you are not getting? That's what you need to think about. And that's the, the idolatry that uh, we're talking about here. Uh, this demand that I must have this. You must treat me this way or I'm going to murder you. That's what James is saying. So that applies to all, this, all of our situations. What is it that we are demanding that God do for us or that God give us or that another person gives to us? And if they don't do it, I'm going to forsake him, or I'm going to get, I'm going to get angry. So Sibs is saying that to be the bruised reed means that you see yourself and your sin as the greatest problem. Okay, my sin bruises most of all. So what makes me miserable, my heart miserable, is not the things happening, but it's the problem in my heart. And so we, he says, we desire mercy more than a kingdom. We desire mercy more than a kingdom. Rather than have everything that I want in life, what I really need is mercy over this sin. The last part that uh, I'll try to just go through real quickly, summarize. Um, he says, well, what if I don't feel bad enough about my sin? Okay, so if I'm supposed to be bruised, I'm supposed to be feel bad about my sin. So what do I do? Well, here he writes um, one of the most famous lines of the book. Maybe you've heard this line. He says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And that line gets quoted in sermons and things to talk about the mercy of Christ. 
But what Sibs is talking about really is about your sin and how if there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you, then you shouldn't shy away from uncovering all of your sin with yourself. You need to take the time and examine yourself to see what sins really are there. And don't let yourself off the hook. Don't, don't let yourself off easy. So if 99% of your problems in life are because that person is doing that thing, Sibs is saying, you need to look at the 1% that James 4 is talking about and dig deep into that 1% to see what is the sin that is in me. But he's saying, you can do that because you know there's more mercy in Christ than sin in you. So even if you uncover mountains and mountains of sin, that's okay. Because you will find Christ will not break you as the bruised reed. So uh, let's pray. Uh, let's ask God to help us with these things. Our God, we do thank you for the objective reality, the promises of your word, for who you are and what our relationship is to you in Christ. We thank you for Christ as the all-sufficient Savior, the great high priest, and our brother, and the one who brings us into your family. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to search ourselves, to be willing to uncover sin in our hearts, that we might find more mercy in Christ. We pray that you would help us to go to Christ and the temptations of the accuser of Satan, that we might um, live fruitful lives, lives of love and praise and glorifying you, lives of joy. Give us this joy in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of being these bruised reeds. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.